Welcome, you're listening to Mouse Madness, a podcast dedicated to bracketing all things Disney. I'm Chris Bowersox. And I'm Kyle Skinner. And we are your hosts for Mouse Madness. Each episode will focus on a single Disney topic, generate a bracket, and debate our way through the madness to figure out who or what is truly the best. Follow us and play along on Twitter at Mouse Madness Pod, or send us an email at mousemadnesspodcast at gmail.com. Okay, Kyle, we back. We are so back. We hope that everybody enjoyed our uh, little April Fool's episode. I I know a lot of you were looking forward to us ranking guest hosts. It, it just didn't feel right because, you know, you're all number one in our hearts, right? Yeah, I, I got a kick out of people reaching out and saying, like, I'm scared to listen. I'm like, <laughs> just, just give it a listen. Two and a half it's minutes. Be okay. That's all you got to do. <laughs> uh, Marissa, did we, did we get you on that? I don't remember. I maybe I can't remember off the top of my head. <laughs> All right. Well, um, not to jump the gun, but we are uh, pivoting. We're back in the music realm uh, on this episode. Sure. Are. And uh, it's been a while, I think, since we've talked about some songs, uh, maybe love songs. So uh, good six months or so, maybe even more, maybe more like eight. Um, so I'm stoked to be talking about some some music. Um, we are talking best Pixar scores. We're back in that Pixar space as well, which is another thing we haven't talked about in a while. So I'm super stoked about it. Totally. And to help us bring in and find out what is the best Pixar score, you already heard her voice. It's Marissa. She's back for another episode for another bracket. What's going on, Marissa? You know, I'm very excited about it. And once Kyle sent me the bracket, I was super stoked about it. Got my notes ready and I'm ready to go. I'm really excited about this bracket. Thanks for having me, guys. Of course, of course. We know you're a big score buff, so we're happy to have you on to talk a little scores. So let's let's waste no time. Let's get right into this this episode here and talk a little bit about some spoonful of sugars. Chris, what you got in your cup this week? So, um, yeah, we're talking Pixar, and winner of our Pixar bracket was Finding Nemo. So that's a movie that always comes straight into my mind whenever we're we're thinking Pixar. And yeah. I was like, all right, what's a good like fish themed drink? And I was like, I don't want to do this, but I feel like I'm going to do it. And I made myself a fish bowl. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I'm going to feel like I'm back at Baja Sharky's on State Street in Santa Barbara, <laughs> but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, the fish bowl is a very versatile beverage. You can pretty much put whatever you want in it as long as it's blue or greenish blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, my fishbowl is uh, vodka, gin, Malibu, lemon, lime, uh, blue curacao, and Sprite. Oh my God. I didn't have a fishbowl, so I went with the other like nautical-themed receptacle and that's a plastic bottle because there's a lot of these in the ocean unfortunately i put some swedish fish in it hoping that they would float (laughs) but they all sunk to the bottom so i'm over here like darla like fishy wake up (laughs) um but yeah i i I, it tastes like i'm 21 years old oh my gosh uh what about you kyle um so there's only a handful of composers on this score list. Pixar keeps it pretty close to the vest when it comes to composers of their scores. And one of them is 
Michael Giacchino. And what I love about him is that he names his songs the biggest puns that he can think of. Every track is just an amazing pun. A few of my favorites, A Bridge to Par and This Ain't My Super Suit from Incredibles 2. It's All Relative from Coco. Giving Months the Bird, which is such a great (laughs) title. And it's from the Up soundtrack. And then Colette shows him Le Ropes. And that's from Ratatouille. I just, I love the way he names these tracks on these scores. Uh, instead of naming it like, you know, so-and-so's love theme or like literally the, the story beat. He's, he's out here just making puns. So uh, when I, I wanted to name my drink after one of his great puns. And so I, <laughs> I looked in the fridge for something to mix with and I had no juices. But I went into the freezer and we had like those frozen lemonade sticks um, that like Minute Maid makes. So I like just put that into the cup, let it melt a little bit, muddled it up. And I didn't really know what to spike it with. So I chose vodka, which is my least favorite of the liquors. And uh, so I'm calling this Chasing Down Sadness which is a title from uh, the Inside Out score because vodka, I hate it, and I'm chasing it down with frozen lemonade, and I'm sure it's not going to be good. I mean, vodka is life's chaser when you're actually, feeling a little good. bit down, you know? So, I mean, oh, hey. Yeah, it's not bad, actually, so I- I'm happy Let's with go. that. All right, Marissa, what you got? Um, so I am a big fan. Pre-COVID, I would always go to a bunch of symphonies, mainly Harry Potter symphonies, because I couldn't find dizzy ones to yeah. be able to go with. So it's fine. Whatever. <laughs> Teach their own. I'll find friends later on in life. But um, in honor of opening week as well, um, I meshed the two together. And whenever I go to a symphony, I always have a glass of red wine in my hand. So I have my L.A. Dodgers wine. Oh, nice. And it's a Cab Merlot blend. And I checked the ratings on it, and people have been giving it four stars or five stars. So it, I have pretty high expectations of it, and I have my Minnie Mouse glass. Oh, there you go. Nice. I got it for a present from my little. So cheers. <laughs> cheers to that. Is that a, a Dodgers championship wine? No. um, It's just the regular one that they have. Just the regular NOS champions. I'll for get the, past the champion 10 years. one later on. <laughs> right. Right, right, right. Uh, so I have not been able to talk with a Dodgers fan in the last 24 hours. So, Marissa, whose fault is it? Cody Bellinger's <laughs> fault or Justin Turner's fault? I watched the replay about maybe eight times and then I cooled down a little bit. But I want to say that it's Cody Bellinger's fault. That's, wow. I'm same. I'm same. I'm wow. same. Because. Because it's up to the runner behind to, be to like, make sure. Yo. Right. So you got you got to be like going slow to first base. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe Belly thought it might be going like off the wall for a double. So he was trying to like round first fast. I don't know. I think it was kind of an unfortunate play. But if I had yeah. to pick someone, it would probably be Belly. But ultimately, it's the left fielder's fault for throwing a baseball <laughs> over the, over the wall. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Also valid. <laughs> Also valid. Uh, there's your inside baseball for this episode of Mouse Madness, folks. All right. Well, we got drinks in hand, and I know that Marissa also enjoyed some drinks this week because she was able to score some tickets to a touch of Disney at Disney California Adventure. So 
we have a trip report that's not from either one of us, Chris, and I'm really excited about it. So Marissa, why don't you explain to us three things that you liked about Touch of Disney, which is essentially a food festival that DCA put on uh, in lieu of the parks opening. And then literally two days later, it was announced that the parks are going to open. So this was a, a, little, a little too late, but the, 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 the state wasn't working with them anyways. But it's basically a food festival in DCA. Uh, tickets went on sale. Things were crashing. I don't know how you got tickets, uh, but you did. So why don't you hit us with three things that you liked about A Touch of Disney and three things that you did not like about A Touch of Disney. All right. Um, three things I liked. I think the first thing that I liked the most was just being back in the park because when they originally opened Buena Vista Street, they would rope off everything. So you can right. even go. So if you're going towards Pixar Pier, they closed right at that Cars Land sign. So you can uh. even go to Cars Land area. So they roped that off. They roped down where the trolley was. They scooted it back like a tiny bit. They were inching and inching and inching in order to open off the page. I want to say the other side was right after the bathrooms at Smoke Jumper, so where that the the plane is. Yeah. So I think just being able to roam around was probably the best part. I'm like, That's I awesome. haven't seen this realm of the park in forever. Like it's been over a year, and because I want to say that my last day was March sixth something okay. March 8th somewhere around that weekend that was the last time that I was in the parks so that's the main part obviously the food was second had some really good food okay really good drinks as well non-alcoholic and alcoholic as well had to try some but that's number two um number three just the experience overall was fun um I've never okay. done a food festival at Disney before I've always kind of been a, I want to go to the park and hang out with people versus focusing on food realm. So that was nice seeing that aspect of it. Those are my three things. My number one complaint would probably be not enough seating for outside. (laughs) Um, I think that they could have definitely used more of the park for the seating area because there were quite a bit of people there for what I thought I was Definitely expecting a lot less of people from what they Mm. were saying for the capacity wise. I was like, there's a lot of people (laughs) here, which like everyone's spaced out and everything. So maybe like that kind of manipulated my perspective of it, at least because I haven't seen anyone at the park besides just being at Buena Vista Street and being at Downtown Disney. But everyone's spaced out. There's always cast members waiting to wipe your table. That's probably um, the main complaint that I had about it was that there was not enough seating because I had a fight for a table around like 2 p.m. ish. Another thing that was a little frustrating, um, I went with my boyfriend and his parents. I would have to help them with, um, so you get this card, this food voucher for $25. So you basically use it as like a gift card. So you had to enter it in. It's just like it's mobile order, essentially. But you have to enter in your 16 digit card on there each time that you process a payment. And then on top of that, you can't put that towards an alcoholic drink, which I kind of get. But also, like, I wasn't going to use my money towards the alcohol drink. But you had to do a separate transaction if you were going to use the Touch of Disney card. Weird. Yeah, I thought that was a little bizarre, but what I ended up doing is I typed in my 16-digit code into my notes and then just doing copy and paste instead of trying to flip back and forth. Like, I had my little backpack, but it 
when you're trying to move everything and trying to hold your map and your your pass, your touch dizzy card. That's a parks vet right there. That's a parks vet <laughs> move right there. Literally. Um, and then for being a 12 to 8 p.m. event, there wasn't that much to do there. It was literally hmm. just a food festival, which in my mindset, I'm like, okay, I want to do like some activities. They had the little arcade games over on the pier side and everything like that but a lot of photo Dang. ops were really long lines um yeah so if they had like a little more opportunity to have a bit more than usual i think that would have been cool but those are my likes complaints and i can go into a whole rant of how i got tickets but i don't think we have time for that <laughs> but i wrote i wrote the times of every single time it fluctuated the 59 minutes 48 49 37 38 uh. i wrote it all down i have it just to commemorate that experience it was terrible but if an fyi for people if you ever want to get tickets like this never do it on your phone always do it on a laptop or a desktop i know someone who tried to do it through their phone they waited seven hours and did not get tickets Oh. oh my goodness. Oh well that's great advice because that's probably what's gonna happen when they reopen the parks and it's gonna be by reservation and it's gonna be the same ticketing queue. So everyone, take it from Marissa. If you're trying to get tickets to Disneyland, do it on your computer, not on your phone. It's gonna be whack. Open up multiple browsers, different computers, do whatever you gotta do. Uh and we wish you the best of luck. So thank you, Marissa, for that trip report. Um, I have one question about it really quick. Did you see Donald waving from the California Grand Californian balcony where they stationed that poor cast member? So I did see Donald. So far away. I did see him and he had his binoculars, but he was not in the hotel. Okay, good. He was right at the entrance of the wilderness um, play area. He was literally <laughs> right there. I didn't find Chippendale, which Chippendale is my favorite, but it's okay. It's fine. Next time. I'm going tomorrow. So Awesome. That's awesome. So great. My uh, trip report is going to Nickelodeon Universe in New Jersey, where uh, there, instead of a Donald waving from the balcony of a hotel, it was Dora the Explorer twerking to positions on a stage. <laughs> and instead of like a normal character meet and greet, like th that's all I need to say for you to like know the difference in vibes between like the Disney experience and the Nickelodeon Universe experience. However, I found the Nickelodeon Universe experience to be quite pleasurable for those very reasons that it was like, the stakes feel so low and I'm about it. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, all right, y'all. Let's talk some scores here. So as we do with every Mouse Madness bracket, we have a surveyed demographic. The parks are not quite open yet. We're almost there, folks, and we can get our interns back in the park so they can start asking park scores some important Mouse Madness survey questions. Uh, so we went ahead and we, we kept it online like we have been throughout this whole pandemic. We went to Twitter and um, we went with folks tweeting about the Mighty Ducks Game Changers series. There were a lot of them last Friday when the show debuted. I was one of them. Mouse yeah. Madness was one of them. It was <laughs> a show a lot of people were talking about. It's really good. I think though everyone was just surprised that it was good. And I don't know why we're always surprised because Disney Plus has been putting out some pretty solid series, original series. But yeah, so this is a great demographic to choose. And they chose 16 Pixar movies 
which they thought had the best scores, uh, which means that just a handful missed the dance. And for me, Chris, The Good Dinosaur, awful movie, but like a pretty solid score. Uh, it's it's solid in the fact that this is a like buddy adventure movie um, and it's very it, it takes place in this very majestic kind of wilderness. So the score itself is very big and sweeping and kind of what you would think would go along with this type of film, uh, especially about like a dinosaur and, and a little boy. Um, and they got to write music for an acid trip, essentially, <laughs> mid-movie. And so I just think that's absolutely hilarious. Um, movie's awful. Score is fine. Uh, I think the fact that the movie wasn't good is why it's not top of mind for people when it comes to scores, which is why it did not make the dance. Chris, what's one for you? Uh, well, I have another one, kind of like yours, where the movie is not great, but the score, I think, was decent. Um, and that's Onward. My very first relationship with music ever was via video game soundtracks. I was obsessed with The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time as a little kid, and I got the CD probably from Borders <laughs> and uh, listened to it like on a loop. I loved it. Um, during like my teenage years, I really loved the Final Fantasy XI soundtrack, and so the music of Onward feels like it's in a very similar vein. Uh, it's very like RPG, very like medieval sounding, kind of like Game of Thrones sounding, which is a TV show I really love. So um, a lot of what Onward was doing was working for me personally. As far as like the score being super deep, though, I'm not sure that it was. It was doing some kind of weird stuff with um, like rock um, because there's that kind of like metal influence that like yeah. Barley has in it. I'm not sure that I, I like that being mixed in, but uh, I guess I give them credit for trying. Um, Marissa, how about you? Um, when I first got the list, I was very disappointed that I didn't see Toy Story 3. Um, yeah. When Bigness. I saw this movie in theaters, just listening to the scores and the whole story, I thought, and I'm sure a lot of people thought this was going to be the last Toy Story. And so I was mentally prepared to just, cry my eyes out like a little baby and sure enough I did and just the whole story all the scores and it, it, just how it all tied together and played with my emotions and you know just going along with the story because I was a 90s baby I grew up watching Toy Story and this was supposedly the last one I was like no I'm not prepared I'm not ready but um so it just everything that they did for this movie and this score I think they did it beautifully, but that's definitely one that missed the dance for me, for sure. Probably should have been the last one, if we're being honest about it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, folks, it's that time. We've got our field of 16 Pixar scores ready to reveal to you. We're going to go ahead and cue that dramatic music. Kyle is going to take us away. We've got a friend in the number one seed. It's Toy Story. Two scores are better than one. Booging its way into the number two spot is Soul. Breaking out the acoustic guitar in the number three seed is Coco. What goes up must come down. Bringing down the house as the number four seed is up. Bashing and dashing its way into the number five seed is The Incredibles. 
This one might need a lucky fin. Swimming its way to the sixth seed is Finding Nemo. Cooking it up at the number seven seed is Ratatouille. Define dancing. Swirling into the eighth spot is Wally. What's behind door number nine? It's the ninth seed, Monsters Inc. No use crying over spilled bing bong. Rolling into the number 10 spot is Inside Out. Life is a highway for the number 11 seed, it's Cars. Just more do it. Riding into the 12 spot is Brave. The rootinest tootinest number 13 seed in the wild, wild west is Toy Story 2. Fake it till you make it. Fighting its way to the 14 seed is A Bug's Life. Attempting to just keep swimming at the number 15 spot is Finding Dory. Elast, but not least, is the number 16 seed, Incredibles 2. All right, Marissa, any favorites out the gate without playing your hand too early here? Um, I definitely have a couple that are near and dear to my heart just because I grew up listening to these scores. And fun story, I used to play piano violin, saxophone, so, and there were a lot of scores here that I learned how to play when I was younger, so I'm going to keep the, I'm going to keep those to myself, but definitely okay, have okay. some favorites there. All right, well, let's get into it. First matchup is number one, Toy Story versus number 16, Incredibles 2. Toy Story score is obviously by Randy Newman. Incredibles 2 is by Michael Giacchino. Uh, before we even start, I said it at the top of the show, Pixar has like six composers in their arsenal and they have like 22 movies. Chris, I know you want to talk about that. So go it, ahead it, and talk about the, the, the minimal amount of composers that we got. So like, I texted you this when we were talking about sports earlier this week. Every sports organization has one person there that is only there because they know someone. <laughs> and, and I feel like that's Michael Giacchino because he has done so many things and you want to be like, okay, what does he know about Disney that they don't want him to tell people? So they're just keeping him employed. Um, not Jeez. to jump too far ahead into this bracket, but it stood out to me the most in Coco because like, you have this opportunity to bring someone in from a completely different demographic, inject some new talent into your studio. Let's go with Michael Giacchino for this. It's like, come on, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, but what's interesting is that he did bring somebody else in. And we'll, we'll talk about it when we get there. Um, All right. I'm also going to pronounce it Giacchino the entire time because I'm committed to it, even <laughs> though I know it's wrong now. But I'm going to commit to Giacchino. Um, but we're going to start. Uh, you know what? Let's talk about him. So Okay. The Incredibles has a phenomenal score. The first movie. It yes. is it has a, a theme. The the main theme ba -da -ba -ba -da, is one <laughs> iconic, everyone drink, and two can be transcribed and transposed into different ways for different themes. And that shows up in Incredibles 2. And that's what I really, really loved about the score in Incredibles 2. So that main theme comes back, but it almost sounds like Michael got a bigger budget for this movie and just brought in like every extra horn player that he knew 
to just blow it out. And I appreciated it so much. It gets me so hyped, dude. It gets me so hyped. Um, specifically, like he he named uh he puts these medleys together at the end of every score, which is just like every major theme in the movie all together. He named it the the in credits in the first one, and he names it the in credits two in this one. That I'm ready to like run a marathon when I listen to the in credits. Like I'm ready to rock. Um. The best way that he used this theme in the Incredibles 2 score is when uh, uh, Tony and Violet are ever in the same area or Violet's thinking about Tony. It shows up, uh, it, it comes in as like a love theme where it's like a do 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 do. Like the theme is still there. We're dealing with the superhero family, but it's used in a context that's not them battling. And I really like that. This follow-up to the first movie is exactly what Finding Dory should have done. Like, take the themes that we loved from the first movie and then do them bigger and do them a little bit different. There's a point in uh, the, the track A Dash of Reality in which that theme shows back up and it's like a hip-hop beat in the background. Um, and it's just so swaggy. It's so good. The Incredibles takes place mid-century like in that time zone but it's like a futuristic 1950s 60s 70s and the way that he uses that big band jazzy horn sound is so great for that time period but then he also injects modern and futurism into that that score so up against toy story which was pixar's first randy newman uh goofy dude goofy sounding voice and he is very well known for that, not only that kind of jazz influence, but the whimsy. He has a very like whimsical, playful sounds. He uses a lot of like xylophones and chimes and and flutes and stuff. Uh, you just think of You've Got a Friend in Me. That song is a theme and that theme shows up all over the place in the Toy Story score, which I think is really important because he uses music to help influence the 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 story beats um anytime buzz and woody have the same thought or make a connection you can hear like or something in the background uh which is just a nice way to tie up that movie he goes hard into tropes in toy story uh which i love as well when buzz first shows up anytime buzz does anything it's this very futuristic almost 2001 space odyssey sounding score and tracks to to influence what we think buzz is or like who we think buzz uh was as a character where he comes from he comes from space so we immediately attach that to those vibes woody has a has basically the you got a friend in me theme um and there's also like an andy theme in there that shows up every once in a while so i really like it i mean toy story is a classic the story is a classic the only thing is though Unless you're doing a Pixar score bracket, I don't know how much I'm listening or even noticing the score and how it does change the vibe or add to the vibe of Toy Story. Um, With Incredibles 2, it's a big part of that movie, in my opinion. I mean, I think music and and superhero movies in general is a big part of it. Uh, You can't just have a fight scene and then the score not match that energy. You don't get a ton of change in energy in Toy Story. 
Um, I I have a feeling I know exactly what Chris is going to say about Toy Story when he does talk about it, though, uh, because he brought up uh, one of the parts and I think our best song bracket, maybe. Um, but I think I'm going to go crazy here. I'm going to do a 16-1 upset. I like the Incredibles 2 soundtrack a little bit better. I think it's just a little bit more fuller. It makes sense. It's very recent. Michael's done this a few times. Randy hopped into Pixar for the first time with Toy Story. So I'm going with the upset. Kyle, you and I, whenever we're talking about parks, we tend to match up pretty evenly at all times. And our co-host ends up doing basically nothing. Whenever we talk Pixar, our co-host gets put through the ringer because yep. we do not line up very well on Pixar yep. anything yep. without fail, no matter what it is. Every don't time. know what it is, but we just don't match up. So Incredibles 2, I think you pretty much nailed it. It is Incredibles, but more. And um, I agree that the marriage of uh, jazz and action movie is unexpected and awesome. Yeah. It makes the movie feel so much more stylized than just like an annoying generic action movie. And that's the success of early Pixar is, is they marry m- music, somewhat sophisticated music with somewhat base forms of art, in this case, animation and family movies. And so Incredibles 2 continues that tradition that Incredibles 1 started for this franchise. The Brass. Yes, the Brass, the Brass, the Brass. Goes hard. It is, it goes hard. Um, And it sucks that I think the takeaway for me from this bracket is I don't like Michael Giacchino's Brass. Oh, shoot. Yeah, we're so, (laughs) this is going (laughs) to, Marissa, buckle up. Buckle up. It's one of those things where um, I'm halfway through the Incredibles 2 score and I'm like, I'm done. I'm done. Like, it's not bad. I just don't want to listen to this anymore. It's stressing me out, which it's it's supposed to stress you out because it's an action movie. Like, you know, there's a chase scene going on. It's it's, you're supposed to feel like, Um, and then on the other hand, we've got Toy Story, which you kind of talked about Randy Newman being this quirky guy with a playful instrumentation in his compositions. I don't see much of that in Toy Story. I see that a lot in Monsters, Inc. I don't see it so much in Toy Story. I see Toy Story as being very classical symphony. The themes that you're talking about when you're talking about character, that's uh, Buzz's da-na-na, da-na, da-na-na, like, just when I do that, I, I want to say to infinity and beyond, like it's magic. So that comes up whenever you see Buzz. Like you said, in music, that's called a light motif. Yep. And um, love it. I love when that's used in any movie. And Toy Story just does it like out of any of these scores the most effectively and most frequently. Um, you got a friend in me, like you said. 100% accurate comes up throughout the movie in various uh, different ways. My favorite moment that it brings it back is during the um, rocket scene when Woody blasts off and they are flying and it goes down and you're falling with style, whatever. Yeah. Then he, then they go into the van and then you get that. You've got a friend in me. Like the second Andy notices that the toys are still there. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. When I think about that song traditionally, I think about uh, Woody and Buzz. Uh, you've got a friend in me, like, stick with you forever. But I think 
if you look at that score, if you look at Toy Story through the lens of the score, it's trying to say that like Andy and his toys is you've got a friend in me. Um, which I don't think is controversial in any way, but it just kind of like reminds reminds me uh, of yeah. that when we're yeah, when yeah. we're revisiting that theme here. Sure. Two thousand one, a space odyssey. I'm so happy you brought that up because I wrote that down. I was like, this when when Buzz is revealed, there is definitely that oh, yeah. kind of like reference. You can it's the tell same it's thing, there. just the notes are mixed up. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right, right. Um, one little like bonus thing for me. Uh, at the end of Toy Story, and this is, I think, what Randy Newman is great at and what impresses me about him. And I think um, he benefits from kind of like rising to prominence during like uh, the era of Spielberg and John Williams is that it seems like every character needs a theme and like you can you you write new themes for like different situations instead of just like carrying that one theme throughout. Um it's the Christmas, the Christmas theme, like at the very end of the movie. Yeah. Um, it's he, he literally they literally run through it like twice, but it's just it's super catchy to me. I can't I can't remember it off the top of my head, but like no. when I heard, it, I was like, oh shoot, this is fun. Yeah, this is fun. Yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking um, about. And and this is when that whimsy does come into play. He bling, brings in some sleigh bells. Mm-hmm. Um, super fun. Uh, Toy Story for me. I mean, easily this this. Uh, like I said, symphonic makes me feel very uh, complete listening to it. Cool. So uh, this one, Marissa, here we go. Welcome to the show. Step Going one. It's funny how these two are paired up because they're right next to each other at California Adventure for Ridewise. Toy Story Mania <laughs> and Incredicoaster are literally neighbors. So I was just thinking about that. And yeah, I love both film scores for what they are. With Breaking Down Incredibles, you do get a lot of brass and you don't get a lot of that symphony. You don't get the string section. You get a lot of it very empowering, um, the brass section, just because of how the story is with the Incredibles. You're not going to want a lot of string instruments for a superhero film. It does happen a lot, but for like a cartoon, you want the hard-hitting notes versus the strings where it's very soft, very subtle, like very graceful. But for Incredibles, it's very punchy. It's very like dynamic in what they do. So I understand why he took the route of brass. And that's why you don't put a lot of brass instruments in an orchestra because they're so overpowering. So I understand why in Chris's aspect of the Incredibles being a lot, but I also understand the side of the Incredibles being such a great score and you just know right away that this is the Incredibles with that just everything that they do it do for it but for me personally I picked Toy Story just because of everything that it does it just personifies just everything that it is for a score that Randy Newman does I do very much commemorate what Michael did for the Incredibles and the Incredibles 2 but I do have to pass Toy Story on. All right, here we go. Toy Story's moving on to the next round. So let's hop on down the bracket. We've got the number eight Wally versus number nine Monsters Inc. Uh, Monsters Inc. Just like Toy Story is a Randy Newman piece. Uh, Kyle, I don't think you shouted this out last round, but a couple of other movies Randy Newman worked on, not Pixar related, Meet the Parents. 
and Seabiscuit. <laughs> and I just want to say, I watched Meet the Parents recently. I watched Meet the Parents recently all the time. Like it's on, it's on a loop in my house. But one time, like very recently, I was like, dang, the music in this is actually really good. And like, I forgot it was Randy Newman. Um, other than, so of random. course, the fact that he sings the song at the very beginning of the movie. We go to get married. <laughs> um, yeah, Randy Newman. Uh, also, obviously, Princess and the Frog. Everyone knows that one. Okay, so yeah. uh, Wally, on the other hand, is Thomas Newman. No relation to Randy Newman. At least I don't think so. No. Uh, Thomas Newman also uh, notably composed The Shawshank Redemption, one yep. of the greatest film scores ever. Uh, Cinderella Man, Skyfall, Spectre, James Bond films, and more recently, 1917, which I did not check out, so I can't vouch for how good that score is. But let's start with Thomas Newman and Wally. I kind of had a hard time, I think, um, when I saw this movie on this bracket, remembering the Wally score. I remember the space dance sequence being very moving uh, and remembering that there was like some good composition going on there but other than that i was like i don't think i remember there being any like super catchy or memorable themes going on there so i had to revisit it and listen in detail and i like i still wasn't super impressed by a whole lot other than that one sequence which is amazing and great and should go on everyone's pixar playlist and probably disney playlist um that number it's called define dancing it's it's when uh, wally and eve are dancing through space with his little fire extinguisher, and then they zoom back onto the Axiom, and they clown Bernie. That's when we get our boy. Our boy. There are some good, like, digging a little bit deeper, Eve has a couple of pretty good themes at the beginning of the movie going on whenever she's on screen. And, and the score as a whole kind of has this element that we'll talk about later in Finding Nemo, where it's a little bit... Um, it, it sounds like there's some depth to it. Yeah, there's the almost vastness. like a yeah, there's like a hum in the background or something. And it's so interesting that Thomas Newman got Nemo and Wally, where he's got space and the ocean, which are it's very so similar good. kind of like environments where there's a lot of unknown and that kind of. And so he brings in that little. It, it feels like um, you know, not very well defined, which which is awesome. I love that about the score as a whole. But um, it makes it so that it doesn't really hit super hard um, as much as something like without that might. Uh, when I think about music in this movie, I often think about Hello, Dolly mm -hmm. and, and how they employ those songs in the movie. And, and those are the type of pieces that we're not taking into consideration when we're talking about scores here. And, and we'll have a similar conversation as we go on throughout this bracket when we talk about movies like Coco, where like the, comp the composing and the songs are kind of two different art forms so um we have to throw the hello dolly stuff away and i mean y'all saddest pixar moment bracket winner wally's memory getting erased what do they do in that moment silence yeah absolutely nothing and that makes that moment hit so much harder for me honestly like oh, yeah. i love a good i love when a movie can pull off a good like um emotional piece during an emotional moment but like that silence is so bold and it works so well here they use it well uh michael uses uses it well in inside out as well like the way yes. that silence is used yes. in that score is similar to here in wally so yeah i mean silence like is it part of the score is it not part of the score like 
I mean, uh, what's his name? John Cage, uh, avant-garde composer, had a whole piece where he just went out and sat at a piano and didn't even touch it. (laughs) Sat there for like 90 minutes and then walked off stage and that was his piece. Like, it's (laughs) what is music, you know? Is silence a sound? We don't know. So, uh, yeah, Wally, uh, uh, not bad, but, but not super memorable for me. Going up against Monsters, Inc., which is another Randy Newman piece, and this one brings in some more of that, like, jazzy Newman fun stuff, and it starts out so hot. So hot. With uh, If I Didn't Have You, which is like the instrumental version. And uh, it's got that door opening animation sequence, which is just so... Th- you know, movies don't do that anymore, where they mm. do the opening the opening credits and just stay there, you know, For and let you kind of get... <laughs> it's so and, good. You know, like, I get it. Like, I get that, you know, we want to get to the point here, let's start this story, but like... um it gets you in the zone. And, and a lot of times you roll into a movie theater five minutes before the thing starts, you know, you got your popcorn, you're trying to get situated and, you know, having that opening number like that really kind of like brings you, brings you down a little bit and, and prepares you for, for the experience of watching this film. Love that about Monsters, Inc. It's a great number. Um, then Mike and Sully walk to work, a little morning commute, <laughs> Randy Newman. It's not as creative as Chiquino in naming his songs. The song's no. called Walk Walk to Work. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice little jazzy number. Uh, there, there's some more like swing to this, um, th- more so than like uh, Giacchino's like jazz stuff in his Incredibles. Uh, it's, it's very kind of like dancey. There's a little hi-hat going mm-hmm. on uh, in the scare floor number when all of the monsters are out there and they're doing their thing. And... It gives uh, the music a, a like a very structured time timing to it, or a rhythm, or tempo, whatever. I don't know. I'm not a musician, so I don't know what the right word is. But I think that that's meant to symbolize kind of how routine this uh, work environment is. It's it's a great kind of like pairing for this this like office setting that is trying to establish with Monsters Inc. The place, not the movie. I mean, already we're like we're like looking good with monsters inc then boo boo shows up yeah and and the boost the boo stuff is the best stuff in monsters inc um you got the booze tired piece which is basically when she's trying to go to sleep and sully puts her to bed it's it's like something like that Yeah, yeah 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 and um it's revisited multiple times throughout the movie, but um, dang, that thing starts off as like, oh, that's that's really touching, like the kitty putting the boo to sleep, and um, it 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 makes you realize the change of heart that Sully's having in that moment, and yep. like, oh, humans aren't bad, like humans are actually nice, and he even says that to Mike Wazowski um, right after he shuts the door. I'm going to talk about Boo is a Cube. <laughs> Boo is a Cube. Th- this song is like the uh, the perfect thesis statement for Randy Newman's uh, naming system in his music. Yeah. Boo is a Cube. Hmm. I wonder what part of the movie that is. I don't know. Maybe when Boo becomes a Cube or they think that Boo is a Cube. Um, it's actually a really fun piece, too. It- it's kind of like 
uh, going back and forth between Sully thinking Boo is getting crushed and it's yes. very like frantic and then cutting to like Boo walking around with the daycare and it's got that kind of like Boo uh, childlike theme going on. Newman brings in some a leitmotif for uh, Mr. Waternoose in here as well, which is kind of got like a military march style uh, to it. It's uh-huh. very commanding. And of course, like we hinted at, um, that boo motif as as Sully puts her back in her room, it, it starts off with a little piano and then it goes into some strings and just they just milk that. Um, and then it ends with like a little hopeful flute as as uh, as Sully shuts the door. Um, that kind of foreshadows that he gets to see her again uh, towards the end. Monsters Inc. Love it. It's great. Wally, it's good in places, just not as deep. So I'm going with Monsters Inc. here. I'm going to do the same thing, and I'm going to save my discussion about Monsters Inc. for the next one. You nailed Wally. There's not a whole lot there. Marissa, do you think we made the right decision here moving number nine Monsters, Inc. on over number eight Wally? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that Monsters, Inc. does have a great jazz influence and it matches the movie very well. Very metropolitan kind of vibe to the movie. And I I do like Wally. Um, it is actually one of my favorite Pixar films. But I love how they were able to pair the instruments to a sci-fi film with yep. Wally. And I think they did an excellent job in that and define dancing. And then another one of my favorites is All That Love's About. If you haven't listened to that one, that is probably one of my favorites over there. But I agree, Monsters, Inc. is definitely very deep in this. But another side note, Thomas and Randy are actually cousins. There, there oh, you go. So, there so is yes, relation. relation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, so they're, they're related, but not really related. But they're related. They're, yeah, they're related enough. Yeah, awesome. exactly. All right, very cool. So Pixar quite literally keeps it in the family. Let's move on to the next matchup. It's number four, Up, versus number 13, Toy Story 2. Uh, We'll start with Up. Up is an interesting one because really, I feel like we all really only know the married life theme. Like that track is what everyone thinks of when they hear Up. Um, It's also the track that Disneyland uses for Main Street USA now. Um, in that opening sequence is, you know, as we, as we talked about, and I think the saddest Pixar moment bracket, uh, just ingrained in everybody's mind. And then after that, it's really hard to remember the story beats of up. If you're not a huge up fan, which we here at the mouse menace podcast have said that we are not. Um, but what was really interesting when going through the score is that the way that Michael uses his uh, uh, the strings in this uh, in this score to show literally like lifting. There's this a lot of sweeping strings that are uh, that that kind of prolong their note in order to show that like things are going lit quite literally up. Um, I thought it was really great. He does that in the song that is called, or the track that is called Carl Goes Up. Um, there's also in that Carl goes up right after that lifting orchestra, there's like a soft married life theme. Like right when they get to the apex and starts floating, it's that like, this is what we always dreamed of. This is the adventure is out there. Like my wife is here with me in spirit type of, of theme. And I really, really like how they use that 
Um, but this movie is interesting because it's either really like heartfelt or it's like action. <laughs> and the tracks kept kind of pulling you each way. And then, of course, like as Giacchino always does, the credits are phenomenal. It's just a, a medley of the film and that really encapsulates the heart. I really enjoyed that. Um, it's up against Toy Story 2. Toy Story 2 has one of the most incredible Pixar scenes of all time. And when it's our, and it is when it's our boy Jerry cleaning up Woody. And you get that. Let's go. It's so, so what a great, like out of nowhere. Randy Newman's like, I got a theme for Jerry. <laughs> what? And it's not anything that like is Toy Story related. Like we never hear that theme again. We never hear any part of that track again. It's just for that moment. And it fits so well. Like, People still share that that scene on like social media these days and is like, this is the most satisfying scene in cinematic history. You know, Um, that's what really, really comes to mind. But what we can't forget is the opening of Toy Story 2 is also an incredible opening to a movie. We get Buzz fighting Zerg. You get that kind of 2001 Space Odyssey feeling again. You get a little Star Wars feeling especially in this one, because Zerg is a very Darth Vader type uh, villain. But you feel like you're in a space adventure through that entire front portion. Like you could just close your eyes and be like, I must be in space right now. I really enjoyed the yard sale track that Randy put together because uh, that rescue of, of Wheezy, uh, there's, there's a part in it that they're emulating and, or they're imitating like tiptoeing or like sneaking, it's like a tuk, 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 with the strings. And it's so perfect because it matches up with that part. And then I am so, so, so very into the second Western portion of Woody's like dream. There's like Woody's dream has like this very typical Toy Story track to it. And then it hits halfway through and becomes this like Western, which then goes into the, the Woody's Roundup theme, which we're not going to like necessarily talk about the song Woody's Roundup. but that. That do, 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 do ends Woody's dream. And I'm just like, I love this song. <laughs> Gosh, it's so good. I texted Chris as I was listening to it. And I was like, I need a vinyl record that's just Woody's Roundup. That's all. Just It's just that song. That's all I want <laughs> so bad. So when it's matched up here, I'm once again going with an upset. I got Toy Story 2 over Up uh, specifically because one, I like the score a lot more. Two, I think that the themes are way more applicable to each character in each moment as opposed to Giacchino's score in Up, which was like he put all of his firepower into those first 11 minutes as it felt like the movie kind of did. And then it just became this like very typical action movie score. Um, Big loud sounds, big high tempo uh, compositions. I'm going Toy Story 2. I think you're forgetting about a couple of moments in Up that that do stand out. Um, the opening credits song, that like uh, old timey kind of like Victrola, wah 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 wah, like that yeah, one yeah, yeah. Uh, comes back actually when Charles Muntz shows up um, because it has to do with like him being a 
like a celebrity and, and being like on TV or on the radio or whatever. I like that piece, but obviously, yeah, uh, the married life. I mean, do one do of do one do of do the greatest. And 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 I I will say the thing that I think is really cool about that is is the notes are structured like flying. So it's like yep. do 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 because like when you when a bird's flying, it kind of like goes boop and then comes down. Yeah. Boop, boop, boop. So so like and it's a waltz. It's yeah. in it's in three three. So like very 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 much makes you want to like dance around or or you know just vibe out a little bit and uh i love it but like you said it's kind of a one-trick pony it comes out a couple other times later uh there's like a little elevator it's like an elevator version when when carl's kind of like carrying the house <laughs> yeah that's right um, and then it actually comes back as kind of like a swelling action theme as uh carl's standing atop the airship um so yeah i mean that's much like wally it's like that that piece is good um but the rest of it uh it's it feels very Michael Giacchino, but it's almost like the opposite of Incredibles too, where it's like a more subdued Giacchino, and 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 it ends up feeling very generic to me. So I'm with you. I'm going Toy Story two. Marissa, do you agree? Yeah, um, I definitely like Toy Story two more in this matchup. Um, I will say that up, I I do enjoy the up scores. Um, I will never not give a score credit. Um, but Definitely, Toy Story 2 is great um, in that aspect. I will give credit to Carl Goes Up, the Ellie Badge moment, uh, yep. the stuff we did score. Those just ripped my heart out and just threw it into the Pacific Ocean. It just was so, it, it's just so sad and heart-wrenching, but definitely Toy Story 2 has a better vibe to everything, but I agree with you guys 100%. All right, which brings us to our next matchup. It's oh, number five, on, The Incredibles versus on, number Chris. 12, Brave. <laughs> come on, Chris. Celtic. Stan. Y'all already know what I'm <laughs> You already know that I love some Celtic. You already know I love some river dance. You know I love some bagpipes. Yep. You know I love some world building. You know I love some RPG, some medieval. You know I love light magic, and that's what Brave <laughs> feels like a lot of the time let me rewind a little bit here uh brave is composed by patrick doyle who is a frequent kenneth branagh collaborator tons of shakespeare stuff directed by kenneth branagh as well as a couple of disney picks thor and the live action cinderella patrick doyle's out here with some shakespeare beats yep uh probably the movie you maybe most might remember him from is Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh he shows up on Brave here and this is his only this is his only Pixar project here. And um I gotta tell you, these these Celtic numbers scratch me where I itch. They are so fun to me. Yeah. Um they are there's one that takes place like the very beginning. The movie opens up and it's got that wow, wow, wow. And I'm just like, daddy's home. Let's go. Let's go. Where's that bagpipe? Give it to me. Give it to me. There it is. That's the bagpipe. Let's go. Oh, uh, it's just so, I just love it so much. 
And then it comes back uh, rollicking during the tournament scene um, yep. where, where all of the guys are trying to compete for whatever it is they're, they're trying to compete for. Just such a fun piece. Not super, like, uh, I want to say, like, musically complex or, like, thematically significant, but it's just, it's just the type of music I love listening to. Yeah. Um, and then you've got kind of a, a cool th- recurring theme that does happen and that's uh, the more do theme. Mm-hmm. More do, more do, more do, more do. And yep. and uh, it, they they chant it over a feast at the beginning, and then it comes back a couple of times on some bagpipes uh, throughout the movie. You've also got this uh, kind of like a a chanting piece uh, like that is called. Yeah, it's like, I don't really know what genre of music it's supposed to be. Probably something Celtic. I don't know. Um, but it's called Noble Maiden Fair. And um, it comes back in the finale when when Merida is hugging her mom and the sun is just barely rising. You get that little chant. Comes back. Gives me chills every time. So something kind of interesting that this movie does instead of giving like giving us like a nice uh celtic symphonic number to send us home they go with uh, birdie and mumford and sons to end the movie and like it's this kind of like pop piece feels uh, super disappointing to me that that they went that route it still feels like fairly celtic and like on theme but i don't know i just i wish there was something kind of original to end the movie Braves going up against the Incredibles. It's a Michael Giacchino piece. It's got all that jazziness. It's got all that brass. Um, there's a, a fun montage during the number Life's Incredible Again, where Mr. Incredible Bobby Parr's got his groove back. Uh, there's kind of a cool, like, very upbeat. It's super happy. Like, makes you want to dance. I absolutely love it and reflects Bob's new mental headspace. Uh, off to work is like this elevator music uh, song as Bob is commuting and he's you know, on these dope future vehicles and like it's still this kind of like corny like commute music and yeah. I think that that is so funny. Uh, ultimately, I love me some Celtic, so I'm going with the bias here and going with Brave over the Incredibles. Not surprised. The first note that I wrote here is. Celtic flavor, so you, I know that Chris is going to love this one. That was the first bullet point of my notes. Um, I like this score. The, uh, the way in which they used the instruments besides just like throwing in bagpipes and fiddles and stuff was interesting and really matched the movie. You have this, this princess who wants to not be a, a princess in the traditional sense. Uh, she wants to kind of break free. She wants to touch the sky. And at the first track, you hear them use a like wind instrument to replicate the sound of like soaring birds and like screeching birds and i thought that was just really well done and they do that a lot here in the score just in general to really set the the place as if you didn't already know where you were and i just thought it really it paired together very well and matched the energy really this score also has some really really like intense moments because we're dealing with like a bear um, so I am Merida is one that gets really like intense at times. Um, but then there's also some really like slow, like uh, uh, lower beat tracks uh, to really highlight that kind of torn relationship between Merida and her mom. Um, 
and I think that that was the right move. We didn't really need like the bagpipe showing up when they're having this troubling mother-daughter relationship, you know? So it's great. But then remember to smile shows up and you got some bagpipes. That's for sure. The only thing that really disappointed me about this score, though, is that the adventure portions felt very generic. They kind of threw away the bagpipes, threw away the kind of Celtic flavor and just went into like, this is what an action movie or action sequence should and would sound like. And specifically, that happens in Merida Rides Away. Did a really good job with the witch's cottage to make it sound like a, a mysterious track that also had some like magic myth to it. And then the the ending is what I really wanted the score to be. Legends or Lessons. Like it had that like non-generic uh, action track mixed with the Celtic flavor, mixed with the the very heart felt kind of Pixar storytelling all in there. I just really wish that that was kind of what they did the entire time instead of flip back over to the kind of generic action. Cross It is The Incredibles. And obviously, I love The Incredibles too. So you know I'm going to love the first one. Um, you know, that that theme is amazing. Uh, I don't know if you introed Giacchino, but he also did Mission Impossible. Super 8, Jurassic World, and then on the Disney side, Rogue One, and the upcoming Spider-Man No Way Home. So he's kind of all over the place when it comes to scores. But all of those, all of those things that I just named, show up really here. Uh, he knows how to write a, a, a spy movie score, and you get a ton of Mission Impossible influence in this. There's a lot of like the you know even that is from that's mission impossible <laughs> that's mission impossible um and i think that's really important because it's not uh a movie in which it uses mission impossible's theme to convey the story it's taking it so that you know exactly what is going to be happening um especially with like the whole uh hidden identity part of mission impossible like bob having to hide his true self from his family as well as the world the entire time. I thought it was a kind of fun little nod, even if he didn't mean it. That's not what I'm drawing from it. The glory days is that I've been really into jazz lately. And so this really is, is that awesome kind of uh, sound, that awesome track for me. And the way in which he uh, uses that kind of like saxophone throughout that track is very like, Batman and James Bond like TV show vibes in which it's like you get the pow boom da and then it's back to the kind of like which is very James Bond feeling. I I think they just he just knew exactly what he needed to do for this movie and for the score and I thought that was awesome. So here for me cuz I it's not going to I just didn't think that Brave did enough with the Celtic flavor and and resulted into resorted to some generic themes and I didn't like that as much as I love this incredible score. So Marissa, it's going to you. So some fun notes about the Incredibles. Um, they recorded everything on an analog tape versus digital to go along with the theme that he was going for, for that 50s, 60s brass vibe. It's awesome. It's classic spy movie songs. Like I just, I loved it so much. And you know, I'm I'm a person that goes extra. I am that extra person that will do whatever we need to in order to make something just 
above the level of everything, right? But in all honesty, like, I studied abroad in Scotland, and I've been to Scotland multiple times, and I've had the opportunity to go to the Royal Edinburgh Military Tattoo. And if you haven't heard of it, it's the annual series of the military that they bring in, and they perform... Uh, from the British Army, Army, and they perform like in front of everybody in the Edinburgh Castle. So it's awesome. I was like basically escorted around because I had tickets for this, um, and it was—it's crazy and insane how much this event like changed my music perspective of everything. I was like, the whole like just country of Edinburgh just came to this event. Like, what is happening? <laughs> there were cops everywhere, just like closed down the streets it was crazy but i mean i love the incredibles for how much extraness they put in there but the scottish influence that brave has and they put so much studying for authenticity to make the songs a part of the land i have to move it on past incredible i do love incredibles but i hate it here the <laughs> the bagpipes and every, I hate it here. if I didn't go to Scotland and I have a Celtic tattoo too, so like an actual one, it's white ink. Fun fact. So it <laughs> if I didn't go to Scotland, I probably would have picked Incredibles. But <laughs> All right. Destiny awaits. Uh, oh boy all right let's move across the bracket here i gotta leave that behind it's the number two soul versus number 15 finding dory uh i alluded to this in the incredibles 2 discussion that that's what they should have done with finding nemo or with finding dory is kind of try and match that same uh tone at least in in because they're very similar movies as far as sequels go um kind of continuing the story on in a very similar pattern you know it's a a very similar storyline in finding dory um with finding nemo except it's not so much of a underwater adventure it's now they're at an aquarium (laughs) uh chris walked out of it on it so we know it's not that great um (laughs) so what i loved about Finding Nemo, and you brought this up in your discussion of Wally, is that feeling of vastness. They are able to make it sound like you are in an ocean without it being just like bubbles and under the sea playing in the background, right? Like you, you feel like you hear those kind of long like whale moans, and you hear some like almost echolocation noises every once in a while. They didn't do a ton of that in Finding Dory. Um, and I get that we're no longer in the ocean, we're in an aquarium, but there just didn't feel like there was a ton of heart put into this. It felt like they like tapped Thomas Newman on the shoulder and said, we're doing this Nemo sequel. Do you want to do it? And he's like, no. And they're like, well, we'll pay you <laughs> this much money. He's like, All right, I'll throw something together. It just nothing landed for me. The movie didn't land. The score didn't really land. He does borrow some themes from from Finding Nemo, like the lost uh in Finding Nemo, where it's that like, dum, 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 like he borrows that a little bit here, um, and then Quarantine in this in in Finding Dory, the track Quarantine is probably the most Finding Nemo that we'll get. It just it's that isn't just a straight cover because you finally get that Finding Nemo theme in Everything About You, 
and it's like fine it's just a callback nod to that first movie but just it just nothing felt real <laughs> about this track to me for some reason it just didn't have heart it's up against soul and like i said i've been really into jazz lately and so this is this is jazz it's john batiste and trent reznor and Atticus atticus ross um trent reznor and atticus ross nine inch nails atticus ross collaborated with Nine Inch Nails, when Trent Reznor was in it, um, they also wrote the score for The Social Network and won an Oscar for it, um, as well as a uh, Grammy for the score of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And more recently, they did Bird Box and HBO's series Watchmen. Uh, And John Batiste is a a jazz musician who uh, is the musical director for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert currently. So uh, I'm really happy that they tapped uh, John to do this score uh, for a jazz movie. Uh, it only makes sense. And of course, he plays on a lot of it. And it's just, a, it's just a jazzy thing. The movie is all about not knowing where you are, finding your way. Jazz is all about not knowing where you are, finding your way. It's a lot of improv in jazz, which is something I really like about Monsters, Inc., they're making it up as they go with this adventure with Boo. So it only makes sense that it's accompanied by Jazz. Same with Saul. He's just trying to, to figure out who he is, what he wants. Uh, doesn't really know. He's just kind of going with the flow, especially when he's the, the Soul character. Or at least he thinks he knows, um, but is really just making it up as he goes. So the themes match the music style. And that's super important to me. Um, there's the only place where this falls off, though, is when we get into the soul world because they want to keep that kind of separation. So the there's a ton of jazz in this score and then it stops and you get this almost weird, like another like vastness thing, but it also sounds super technological, which I thought was a really interesting choice for a movie about the like beyond, I guess, or the the soul world. And they leaned into sounding like technology. I don't know. It that just never matched up for me. It, it matched in the movie well, but when you listen by itself, it's like this isn't. I don't like this. Um, they released the score in two different versions. One is with just the jazz, and then songs inspired by the movie by John, and then the other one has the like other soul world tracks on it, and that's the one that we were listening to. I just love the soul soundtrack a lot. Um, you know, I don't see Soul really going super far because of that Soul world. Honestly, because it felt it just doesn't match up a ton, um, but it's way better than Finding Dory's score, in my opinion. Uh, so I'm going to I'm moving Soul on here. I had the same thoughts as you, Kyle, when reviewing Finding Dory. I was like, this feels like Finding Nemo's score, but not as good. Yeah. Um, I am also going to advance Soul. I'm going to give everyone a little teaser of what we're going to talk about next week. But I found the Soul World music to be some of the best music in the all of the Pixar score catalog. So I cannot wait to dive into that on the next episode. Moving Soul on. Marissa, do you agree with that one? Absolutely. Um, I very much agree with both of you. Just Finding Dory was, I mean, it was okay, but even this the scores were okay and it just didn't fit the realm for me. So I'm more than happy to pass soul on. It's clearly the winner in this, in this matchup. 
So that brings us to our next matchup. It's number seven, Ratatouille versus number 10, Inside Out. So Inside Out has a lot of that similar kind of like uh, Soul World style, like ethereal, um, like nondescript or, uh, yeah, like indescribable kind of like genre bending, just futuristic tones, yeah. <laughs> essentially playing. And I really dig it. Um, mm. I found that to be very like, um, grounding, I want to say is like the right word. And when we're talking about a movie like Inside Out, and I guess, I mean, even a movie like Soul, you're talking about introspection and like forcing the audience to look within themselves. So having that kind of like, almost like Zen, like, um, musical flow happening underneath everything, like really helped keep me focused on the music and that translates that translates into you know staying focused on the movie as well the action on the screen so jacchino is like the brass guy and i was very very happy to see him not use very much brass in the inside out score and that brass like marissa said is very overwhelming it's very in your face and Inside Out is not a movie that's trying to be super in your face. It's got a child as its lead, essentially. So instead, Giacchino utilizes a lot of xylophone. Ton and of that it. makes it, it yeah, it makes it feel super youthful. Like it, yeah, innocent, youthful, um, naive. Uh, it's like a dream sequence or like a like a dance or something. And I mean, I love it. We hear that xylophone with some flute in first day of school, which is Riley's first day of school. And um, Goofball No Longer is another piece that I got kind of like positive uh, feelings from. It's when the island like collapses. And, and for a second there, you get that Giacchino like, oh, da, 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 like, oh, this is an action scene. They're going to run away. But then it kind of like tones down into some nice like chimes and like the xylophone and, and there's that hum going on. Um, that's good stuff to me. Uh, Bing Bong has his own song mm-hmm. called Chasing the Pink Elephant. <laughs> and honestly, like I hate Bing Bong, but this song's pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, very unique sounding, very playful. It sounds like a circus music. I don't know like what instrument that is that makes it sound that way. Uh, maybe like accordion or like hurdy-gurdy or something, but it makes it sound very childlike and and I love that. Imagination Land, another piece that's really fun with lots of xylophone. Uh, but perhaps the best moments in the inside out score happen during the sadder moments like tears of joy when joy is at the bottom of the pit. She thinks there's no way out. Uh, we're lost. We're never making it back to headquarters. Um, and it's just very slow, very quiet with those strings that just milk your emotions so perfectly. And um, Kyle, you, you reference like uh, silence being an important part in these sad moments in um, inside out. And, and we see that, as sadness kind of like um, takes over the control panels a little bit. Uh, there's the piece that, that like ends the movie is called Joy Turns to Sadness slash A Growing Personality. And it's very moody, but very simple. Yes. Um, and and I, I'm proud of Giacchino 
for showing a lot of restraint in that moment <laughs> and kind of like letting the audience enjoy that very like intimate moment, you yeah. know? And so uh, the movie ends with this growing personality number. And uh, so many of these Pixar movies, especially the uh, uh, Randy ones, they end on these like big heroic notes and they hit those uh, character themes and they send us to credits. And uh, with Inside Out, it's it's just a really nice, like melodic, harmonious, gentle kind of ditty. And then it hits just like a very soft note mm-hmm. to, to send us home. And I mean, that's perfect for, for the type of intimate, um, introspective movie we have here. Inside Out's going up against Ratatouille. Let me say this. Le Festine is an elite Disney song. Yes. So good. Absolutely. So, 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 Absolutely. so good. Um, the end credits of Ratatouille, also so, so, so fun. Uh, if I didn't mention, Ratatouille is a Giacchino piece as well. So we got a Giacchino v. Giacchino going on here. Yep. Um, so we have some two pretty Frenchy numbers bookending uh, Ratatouille and then nothing in the middle. It's all very generic to me. I'm like, yeah. where, where is this like French inspiration? Like, where is this energy throughout this entire movie? It's all just like very bland. Um, much like the movie itself. So while I would highly recommend putting Le Festine on all of y'all's playlists, uh, I'm advancing inside out for, um, like just the uniqueness of, of the whole composition. Yeah, totally. I mean, like brave Ratatouille has that really generic middle and, uh, it's, it's not that great. And it's up against inside out, which is such a emotionally powerful movie and instead of yes big brass which they do use big brass in some moments and it kind of slaps you in the face during the score uh for the most part he keeps it super super gentle and fragile almost uh the xylophones the bells it's it's whimsy because the the inside out in in riley's head is a very whimsical world with like islands and and all that stuff um, but then also gentle and fragile because Riley is in such a vulnerable state throughout the entire movie. It just matches so well. However, you brought up that you enjoyed uh, Imagination Island. Uh, that it's unlistenable to me outside of the movie. <laughs> I like was working. I was working during most of my listening through all of these soundtracks, and that came on. I was like, "This is just bonkers." <laughs> it matches well in movie with the film. But on its own, I'm like, ah, like skip. We got to skip. It's too much for me. Um, but it works for the movie. I'm with you. Inside Out is moving on. Marissa, do you have any problem with putting down the rat? <laughs> Not a problem at all. Um, I watched Ratatouille this week uh, just to refresh my brain with how the scores match with this film. They do have a lot of lively uh, woodwind instruments that play along with the accordions and the guitars that they have in there. And they did get an Oscar nomination and a Grammy win for this. But in all honesty, like when I watch Inside Out with how particular that they are with the different emotions that they have in this film and they match it with joy, sadness, fear, anger, disgust, and with Riley and pulling that all together, they also only use certain instruments for each motion. So putting that extraness in there and making it so specific to like, oh, I'm only using these set of instruments for this character puts in a lot of effort on my end. So obviously I'm going to agree with you guys and put Inside Out onto this next bracket for us. Let's go across to number three, 
Coco versus the number 14, A Bug's Life. This is going to be Here a fun we go. one. So, Here we go. Coco, another Giacchino track, another Giacchino joint. Uh, I carry a ton of bias into this one because I saw Coco at the San Francisco Symphony um, two years ago, and it was like incredible. It was just so amazing to hear the score live while watching the movie. This is a a Mexican story uh, talking about the Dia de los Muertos. And you're like, God damn it. Why is Michael doing this stupid score? And luckily, Michael had the sense to bring in somebody as a cultural consultant. His name is Camilo, Camilo Laura. And this, this guy is a Mexican producer who created a project called the Mexican Sound Project. Um, and they, that's a collective that they have released multiple albums. And he's won like Latin Grammys for them. Um, so this is this dude knows what's up. They even recorded most of the score in Mexico. Like they they brought in the Mexican musicians from the from the project and did it there. And I think that's the authenticity that we would hope for out of this movie. So I'm really happy that they did that. Um, so he does a great job of like blending his own uh, influences, his own style in with this Mexican traditional. Uh, sound as well. Now, I'm not going to get everything correct when I talk about this because I'm not super well versed in Mexican music in general. Um, and I, I'm not, I don't want to like stereotype everything as like mariachi, you know, because <laughs> that's definitely not what this is. But it's just gorgeous, man. They, they use the acoustic guitar so well throughout this entire film. And I get that that's, that's Miguel's thing. He's the guitarist. Uh, that's, uh, 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 De La Cruz's thing. He's a, a musician that plays the guitar. But the way in which they weave it into everything else is just so beautiful. Um, the Probably the most gorgeous track, honestly, on this bracket is Crossing the Marigold Bridge. It is just like that super beautiful uh, buildup, super soft. That... And then you get Michael's... Like, as you see the city and dude watching that live was you getting hit in the face with that sound is literally what Miguel feels when he gets hit in the face of the sight of the like land of the dead. It just it just feels very appropriate, in my opinion. It was just so well done. And then in uh, like Mexican music, brass is huge. That's a huge part of of music. So it just it just everything made so much sense. So I see why they tapped my boy Michael to do this score because they're like, all right, we got the horns guy. We we got to give him this project. And then when you're in the uh, the family, the Department of Family Relations, he kind of mutes that horn a little bit. But then you get a ton of percussion and a fabulous bass line throughout that entire track that really sets that tone like i'm glad that it wasn't just like let's lean heavily on the on the brass because that's the most identifiable identifiable part of this cultural music like no there's so much more to it and they really allow it to to come out um and the traditional violin cues that you hear throughout you know and and it's just so well done everything the way that he was able to weave everything in and i can probably chalk that up to to this cultural consultant camilla laura like huge huge part of it it's up against 
Bugs Life, which honestly, dude, that um that opening main title sweep when you when you're watching the movie and it's that I'm just like I get chills every time. I don't know why. It, it's just like such a com- that's such a comfort movie, A Bug's Life. Like inject it straight into my veins. That that <laughs> theme, that main theme. It's just so beautiful. And then also, of course, the once a bug, little bug. That even just that theme, do 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 do, is just so fun and like bugs world ish. You know, like it just feels it feels right for the movie. And I also like that they give Flick this theme of the like boom 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 boom. Like he's always on a mission. Like he's building things. He's trying to solve problems. They send him to the city. Like he's always just trying to get do the best at the next thing. And I feel like that theme works a ton for him. What was really interesting though is that they they gave the the grasshoppers a theme that sounded super heroic. Um, I don't know if you guys felt that at all, but like it just felt like the wrong vibe for that crew that was so menacing and terrifying for to the ants. And it felt like they gave them a very heroic theme for some reason. Um, but what I really, really do like is that, I mean, this is a movie for Randy. This is a movie about <laughs> bugs that has circus themes that is like, ah, oh, you couldn't have found a better guy to do the circus themes than randy newman and then uh dot's rescue is just like pure chaos but also like some little moments of whimsy some little moments of heroism like it's very well everything's just so well paired together it felt like though besides so like he created themes for like flick maybe ada um and then it was all general stuff for the grasshoppers that also served as like the bird the fake bird theme um the circus theme for all of the all of the characters in the circus including pt flea it's almost more his theme than anybody else's so it almost felt like randy went from creating very specific beats for toy story and then got bugs life and was exhausted from toy story and kind of let let off the gas a little bit and i kind of wish that there was more um for these characters because it is a it's a complex storyline with many moving parts but i don't know it felt like there was a lot of rinse and repeat in this movie ton of rinse and repeat for me it's coco coco is just the the more impactful the better blending of musical styles uh and it's just is way more it, it has a, t- a ton more heart for me uh than bug's life so i'm moving coco on so i came in hot being like Mm, yeah what is this new jersey guy doing yeah composing coco yeah and i'm glad to hear he had some help and i kind of inferred that because it sounded very authentic to me so i assumed at the very very least he did his due diligence in researching the genre to make it sound uh, pretty good and that is uh noticeable mostly in the earlier numbers they open with a piece called Will he shoemaker? <laughs> Which I don't I don't know if there's a pun there that like I I'm not getting or something, but um uh, it's good. Very authentic sounding. It's um, a slap, Ma- man. It's so good. <laughs> Miguel is like in the real world Mexico and um yeah. 
super fun, uh, super upbeat. Crossing the Marigold Bridge, I agree, is a great song, as well as the Depart- Department of Family Reunions. So I want, I want to talk about the genre. So, Kyle, I'm sure you got a great listen being like seeing all of this live. I almost got the impression that it was like a different orchestra. Some of the earlier numbers that sounded very authentic. And then as the action sequences kind of like built up and some of the sadder moments kind of like were sprinkled in, kind of felt a little bit more traditional. And honestly, that was really, really disappointing to me because the Mexican music tradition is so rich with so many different genres that do that so perfectly. He goes with just your classic Chiquino stuff. And, and, And I get it. The guitar is important to the theme of the movie and Miguel as a character. But as someone who spends a lot of time listening to Latin pop, Musica Mexicana. It was like, I don't know, felt like they could have done more. Bugs Life, bro, Bugs Life is so, so good. I get what you're saying about like, oh, maybe he didn't uh, rinse and repeat. That's what makes it good to me. Mm. Um, because you look at movies like Star Wars or like Indiana Jones, and like, yeah, those are the same themes that like repeat over and over and over again, but that's what makes them good and memorable. They're employed in like perfect ways. That as Flick is going off on that dandelion, boy, that that's when I want to run a marathon. Not Incredibles is is that that flick on a dandelion. The bird flies. This is like when they're doing the big climax where the grasshoppers are trying to fight the ants. This reminds me a lot of the moving scene in Toy Story, where it's just Mm. a lot of different things happening musically. The composition takes you for a ride. It's no just like kind of like what Giacchino does sometimes in his action stuff. And like, that's what I love about Randy Newman is like, it's just, it's more colorful. I think is a good way to describe it. Um, yeah, the ending's beautiful. It comes back with that flick theme. Love it. I mean, I can listen to Bugs Life score beginning to end on a loop. Uh, I throw on Coco and it's like four discs because there's the songs, the songs in Spanish and then the score and then the covers. And it's, it's, it's a lot. Um, appreciate Coco, but I'm going with Bugs Life. So this one's going to Marissa. You don't have to break another tie. I remember a couple of days ago, Kyle tweeted out... Um... What, what was it? Coco. It's a Coco soundtrack, but in Spanish. Only That's, in caps. It, it's true. It's true. I agree with that tweet. Yeah. I, repl- I replied to him. I was like, that album slaps. Like, it's yeah. so good. And I think also, like, when they did um, the quarantine Disney sing-alongs, when they did the Spanish version, but also the English version, I love that. I love how they're able to incorporate both languages in such, like, a unique way to like mesh both together and i think that's beautiful and i love dia de los muertos suite um i love yeah. uh one year later mm-hmm. very underrated i love that song it is so beautiful and i love how michael was able to 
um he was just so like i have no idea what mexican music is like help me you know so he wasn't afraid to be like hey like i needed to be accompanied by a mariachi band in order to get this right and that's what i love about the different pixar scores is that there's so many films that are all over the world you know they match those scores so well to where they are and even though pixar's lineup isn't even that deep in number wise according to disney but they have a very wide variety of different diverse films of location wise that it, i love talking about this because like there's no way that i would know what being underwater feels like or up in space with wally and a fire extinguisher there's just no way but they are able to bring that together and bring that to light and bringing in my bias here when i was little i learned the bug's life suite when i was young i knew there was a butt <laughs> coming up during all of that hype and that is so i started playing piano when i was in kindergarten and i have my disney music hits <laughs> <laughs> oh there it is let's go it's awesome so um there are a few like on here they they obviously threw some pixar in there they have cruella Deville. beautiful you have they, to they brought in the doggos so it's okay but um yeah uh this was i pulled it out of the uh piano chair my kindergarten teacher was my music teacher she would come over to my huh. house for my brother and i when we were younger <laughs> so that's how i learned how to play piano and also learned the recorder so I'm pretty, did I learn Bug's Life on the recorder? I feel like I did, but I can't remember. If I, if you gave me a recorder, I, I'm sure I'd be able to figure <laughs> it out. But I can definitely do it on the saxophone. I can definitely do it on the piano. That was one of the most fun songs that started my love of music scores because of Bug's Life. As much as it's an older film of the Pixars, it's so beautifully written for score-wise. And... It started my love for classical music and everything, so I got to tip my half off to that. That's going to bring us to our last matchup. It is the number six seed, Finding Nemo versus number 11, Cars. Finding Nemo, Thomas Newman, Cars, Randy Newman. Now, if you asked me two weeks ago who scored Cars, I would be like, I don't know, Rascal Flatts? Because <laughs> that's literally the only thing I think about when I think of Cars, like, does Cars have a score? I right. thought it was just like a bunch of pop songs in that movie. So I'm like, all right, it's Randy Newman. Let's check this out. Open up open up the album. There's a Sheryl Crow song. Okay. There's a James Taylor song. All right. There's Rascal Flatts. There's Brad Pace. Where is Randy Newman? Oh, Randy Newman's at the very bottom of this. And he only has about 20 minutes worth of music in this whole entire movie. So I'm like, all right, this is not a good start. And this is like not Randy Newman. Like Randy Newman's the guy who scores it beginning to end. Every single moment is accompanied musically. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to give it a shot. And um, it, it felt so like mailed in. Uh, I will say it is interesting to see Randy Newman experimenting with some instruments that we don't uh, get to see him work with often he's got a little banjo yep little acoustic guitar yep um feels very like rural very country if there was a piece i would pick out uh, out of the car's score it would be mcqueen and sally 
Uh, that's definitely the highlight number here as they're driving through Radiator Springs up to the falls to see Ornament Valley. And I think that that's the piece that makes it onto Radiator Springs Racers at yeah. California Adventure. Um, it brings in a lot of those other instruments, that acoustic guitar, um, but kind of maintains that Randy Newman, nice classical, um, just pure uh, people-pleasing sound that, that he's got in his uh, composing. Going up against Finding Nemo, that whistle, boom, boom, boom. Little fish is swimming in the ocean. Yep, Man, yep, yep. like it's great. I mean, this is such a great album, beginning to end. Um, I wanna I wanna break it down because it's got a lot going on uh next episode. I think I think y'all are gonna agree with me on sending cars home here, so I'm not gonna talk too much. Yeah, cars didn't need the score to be great because they had actual songs in it to like really carry the mood of it the entire time. Life is a highway route 66. Um, my heart would know like they, they, the songs carry the movie as backtracks. Uh, so you don't really need a ton of Randy for it. Um, you're right. Uh, the McQueen and Sally suite is awesome and beautiful. And I think it's called new road. Maybe it's dirt is different, but that's that, banjo that ding 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 also in radiator springs racers at the very end when you end your race and you pull it back up to the the loading dock um so yeah i mean those two themes are fantastic but cars just doesn't have enough finding nemo has a ton and i'll talk about all i'll talk all about that in the next episode because i'm also moving it on which means that we have finished our bracket of 16 into the elite eight so before we head over to Marissa for thoughts, let's recap what we've just done. It is the number one Toy Story facing off versus number nine Monsters, Inc. next time. Down the bracket, it's going to be number 13 Toy Story 2 versus the number 12 Brave. On the other side of the bracket, it's number two Soul versus number 10 Inside Out. And rounding out our Elite Eight, it's going to be number 14 A Bug's Life versus number six Finding Nemo. Marissa, what are your thoughts on where we ended up here? Um, I'm very happy with this. Um, I was a little scared with how a couple um, face-offs were going to be, obviously with some high-numbered brackets against, or high-number spots against low number, but you never know what's going to happen in Mass Madness, so <laughs> <laughs> that's always the theme here. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. You got something to say about this Pixar score business. If you want to write us a long form email, please send us an email at podcast at gmail.com. If you want to join us on social media, we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord. All of that is linked in the description of this podcast. We hope to see you there. Folks, till next week where we bring this thing home to infinity and beyond. Like me, you can do it, 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 you